0: All right, and as the kids are leaving, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 11. We made it out of chapter 10, everybody. We're in chapter 11. For those of you who are visiting with us, we are typically preaching verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And since we believe that every word of Scripture is inspired, we do pay attention to every word, which means it takes us a while to make it through a passage from time to time. Uh, But we finally made it out of Mark chapter 10. And we're moving into Mark chapter 11. And we'll read verses 1 through 11 together. Mark 11, looking at verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem... To Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And The American reality series, Undercover Boss, has now been entertaining audiences, at least here in the United States, for eight seasons. It's a pretty simple show. If you've never seen it, you'll catch the idea pretty quickly. Each episode depicts a person who has an upper management position at a major business, and he decides to go undercover as an entry-level employee to discover the faults of the company. And as you watch the show, the boss is exposed to a series of predicaments with amusing results and invariably spends time getting to know the employees of the company, learning about their challenges. And at the end of the show, there's always a big reveal where there's finally this moment and this time in which they thought they were just working with another guy and he unveils himself to be the president, the CEO of the company, if you will. Now, I could only imagine what it would be like to be that person, unaware, all week, and then to find out in that moment that you were really working with the boss, (laughs) the one in charge of it all. Now, I think most of us, when we think of that, may probably be, I don't know, challenged by that like oh no I wonder if I would have said or done something wrong but the show is actually designed not necessarily to point out the faults with the employees the show's been designed actually to show the faults with the employer the authority it's supposed to be an encouragement to them and they realize that oh we need to provide better working conditions we we need to make sure we're taking care of our employees And so, when we think of an authority being revealed or unveiled, I think for a lot of us, that could seem to be a scary thing, but in many ways, authorities for us, as we even just prayed this morning, should be an encouraging thing. I'm thinking particularly of a couple of instances. If I were to tell you, if we were riding down the interstate and you were going the typical 83 miles per hour, Uh, on the way up to Fort Myers or down to Miami or over to Miami. And all of a sudden, I were to point out to you that there's a policeman. Now, I've identified an authority. And now, all of a sudden, your perception of your driving changes. (laughs) You're either thinking, oh, man, I need to slow down. I'm doing something wrong. Or if you're somebody who goes the speed limit or the speed limit you're supposed to go, It's not that big a deal. You're like, oh, fine, I'm glad he's out there. I'm glad he's taking care of the roads this weekend. A similar thing would be true of of students in regard to a teacher. I remember the chaos and the anarchy that could take place as a teacher steps out of the room for just a few moments and tells everyone to be quiet, and then all of a sudden all the kids just start whispering, and then it goes into a quiet little roar, and then it's just everybody screaming at the top of their lungs. And do you ever have that moment when the teacher steps into the back of the room (laughs) and you realize she saw everything? For some students, that could be a scary thing. But for the students who were being quiet, it's not a scary thing at all. The authority is a good thing. They're there to learn. Now, I would dare say that there'd probably be more students who were talking than those who were not. But either way, the authority is a two-way street. Knowing that an authority is there can either comfort you or it can challenge you, depending on your state. I would give one more example of this, and that is just somewhere like even an airport. Remember the last time that you took a trip on a plane, and all the different authorities you saw around? Now, while I'm not all that pleased with the efficiencies of the TSA, I will say that I'm glad that they're there. I don't have any fear. When I know that there's dogs walking around, sniffing bombs, it doesn't bother me a bit. I'm glad they're there. I'm glad to see the presence of authority. I would imagine that that would only be something fearful for those who were planning something suspect. My point is, the revelation of authority should affect the way that we act, the way that we live, and I would dare to say this morning that we all know theoretically that authority exists, but sometimes we feel disconnected to it or react as if it doesn't exist at all. Do you ever look around at the world scene, listen to the news, hear the reports on the radio, and wonder, where's the authority? Where? Where's the intervention? If if Jesus is ruling over everything, what is going on here? Why is there so much corruption in the government? Why is there so much unrest politically around the world? Or think more locally. Why is there so much anarchy in my own home? Why do people die? Why do I get sick? Why is it that the the wicked prosper and that I'm trying to just be faithful and I just can't seem to climb out of this same financial hole I mean do you ever wonder if Jesus is ruling and reigning if he's truly the authority why are things the way they are you see corruption and cringe and wonder who's in charge do you ever need assurance that authority is present that there really is a king on the scene I would assure you this morning that the book of Mark has actually been written to show us that Jesus is this authority. If you were to flip back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he says the whole point of his book, and I'll just read this verse to you. It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's saying, I'm writing to tell you the good news, the best news ever, that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, was... The Christ, the Son of God. Now for those of you who don't attend church very often, you hear that word Christ and you think it's just some unique, maybe Jewish kind of a term. It is a term that comes from Judaism, but it basically means what we would think of as a king. Jesus is the king, the Son of God. He is the divine sovereign. He is the divine Son of God. He is is the one who was promised from long ago that would fix everything. And so Mark's been writing to show us how this Jesus was that one who would come and rule and make everything right. And as you're reading through, Mark, and as we've been studying this together, I mean, we've seen some amazing displays of Jesus' authority. We've seen His authority over men, His authority over demons, His authority over the Word of God, His authority over sickness. We've not only seen authority, but we've seen impressive displays of divine power. I mean, we've seen Him control nature itself. I mean, manipulate like the laws of thermodynamics all for the good of His people. He's done things that only Creator God could do. He's not only overcome demons and disease and natural disasters, but we've even seen Him overcome sin itself. He's the one that has the authority not only to forgive sin, but he's also the one who has the authority to remove the penalty of sin because we've seen him even overcome death itself. So you start to think like, wow, maybe this is the divine son. Maybe this is the promised king. He's got all this authority, but there's a dissonance, there's a discord, there's a minor key, if you will, that plays all throughout the earlier chapters of the book of Mark, and that's because you see Jesus doing all this stuff that just clearly sets him up to be the king and the ruler and the authority, except every time somebody calls him out to be the king, every time somebody acknowledges him to be the ruler of the world, what does he do? He tells them to be quiet. Don't tell anyone. This happens twice with demons. They exclaim that he is the Lord, the Son of God, and he tells them, shh, don't tell anyone. He'll heal someone and he'll say, don't tell anyone. Keep this a secret. Peter finally recognizes in chapter 8 that this is the Messiah, this is the King. And what happens? He says, don't tell anyone. And then he spends the next three chapters clarifying what he would be as a king. So there's this silence, but there's this authority, and there's been this clarification for the last three chapters, but everything changes here. It's at this point in the book of Mark where Jesus finally goes public with his revelation that he is the long-promised king. This text finally identifies him as king, albeit a countercultural king so that we would embrace His unique authority. He wants you to acknowledge and understand that He is the authority. And this text, rather enigmatically, will declare that this is the promised king that we're looking for, even if we don't always understand His rule. Admittedly, it's a difficult passage for us just to sit down and take in, because it seems rather confusing. So to simplify it, I'm going to break it up into three different sections, three different events. And I've labeled the events just kind of following the narrative. The prophetic preparation, we're going to see that in verses 1 through 6. The political procession, we're going to look at that in verses 7 through 10. And then the puzzling retraction. In verse 11, don't worry, I'll repeat those as we go throughout the message. The prophetic preparation. Let's look at verses 1 through 6 again and see how Jesus prepares for this entry into Jerusalem. It says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. Now, on our Paul's there, do you notice how Mark, from the very beginning here, seems really concerned about the geographical details of where they are? When you're reading the Bible, that's a good question to ask yourself from time to time. Why would he care so much about these details? He mentions near Jerusalem. He mentions Bethphage, Bethany. He mentions the Mount of Olives. I mean, all in one time, through these geographical details, Mark makes one thing exceedingly clear to anybody familiar with the ancient Near Eastern world, and that is this. He is close to Jerusalem. He's pointing out all the, the landmarks, if you will, to give them a clear indication that he is near Jerusalem. Now, why does it matter that he's close to Jerusalem? Well, if you've been studying with us in recent weeks, you'll remember that it is Jerusalem that has been forecasted to be the source of the most aggressive opposition that he would face. You look back to chapter 3, verse 22, or even chapter 7, verse 1. His greatest hostility has come from emissaries from Jerusalem. And also we know from chapter 10 that the epicenter of his earthly conflict would also be in Jerusalem. He said it is in Jerusalem that he would go and die. So he is near to that place where his ultimate fate would take place. And at the same time, Jerusalem is also, for any Jew, the city of David. It's the chosen capital of the nation that... God chose to be a light to the nations. It's the place to which the Christ, the promised King and Deliverer, must come and present Himself to His people. So we've got this paradox. Jerusalem could be awesome and grand because Jesus could come and rule on a throne. Or, Jerusalem could be devastating. It seems like it's going to be the place of His death. It seems like it's going to be a hornet's nest of hostility. So he's close to the city of messianic suffering and sovereignty. And once he gets close, he stops. And the text says, we're resuming right before verse 2, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Now, I don't know if you're catching this, but it seems a rather puzzling thing to do. Why not just go into Jerusalem? Why stop the whole entourage? We know that there's a great crowd with them from the previous context. Uh, and start to speak in this way. Why, why send two disciples ahead to confiscate someone else's property? Why should the cult be one on which no one has ever sat? Why does he show us this picture of Jesus taking somebody else's property so that he can go into Jerusalem. It's, it's puzzling. And it's almost as if Jesus here is speaking as some type of clairvoyant. You're going to go into the city. You're going to find this donkey at this place. These people are going to ask you a question. You're going to tell them this and then you're going to come back. He's speaking prophetically. Now the specificity that's here is astounding. This village that we don't even know where it is, but they haven't been to it yet. They haven't arrived yet. It's in front of them. He says, you're going to go into this place, and as soon as you get in there, immediately, you're going to find a young donkey. He's going to be tied up, and in fact, it's going to be a donkey that has never been ridden on before. And then, you're going to untie it and bring it back, and then, of course, somebody's going to ask you what you're doing, and then you're going to say this, and they're going to respond this way. Now, in light of the puzzling specificity of this plan, it's going to be clear to the surrounding crowd and everyone that's around them that Jesus is either endowed with supernatural ability to see the future, or he's just plain crazy. Another thing that is interesting about this little prediction is how puzzling it is. It's just rather odd. There's There's a presumption that's here. Notice what Jesus says, and he hasn't done this anywhere yet in the book of Mark. Notice specifically in verse 3, he says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. The Lord. Jesus identifies himself as the Lord. I mean, it's just as it is in the English, in the Greek text. It's a definite article with the word kurios. That's the same word that was used to identify the emperor of the day. I mean, curios or lord could mean lord, master, owner, boss in a general sense, like I'm the boss of the company. But when you put the definite article in front of it, it was typically referring to either the Roman god at that time, which was Caesar Augustus because he himself claimed to be deity, or if you were in a Jewish context, you were talking about God Almighty himself. And so whether you're a Greek, a Jew, or a Roman reading this, You see Jesus calling himself the Lord? And this is a very presumptuous statement. Not only does he call himself the Lord, but the cultural background of the time also affirms that kings and rulers in that culture could exercise the right of confiscating an animal for official use. That was just a prerogative of a king. Just kind of like the police can confiscate your vehicle. I've never seen that happen, but it happens in the movies. They could take your car and use it for their own purposes. In a similar way, a king in that culture was able to do the same. It was written about in several different instances. And there's one more thing that's interesting here, that Jesus doesn't just say, get a donkey, but he says, get one that's never been ridden on before. In the Old Testament, an unbroken beast of burden, one that had never been sat on before, was considered sacred. Something extremely appropriate for a king. And so not only is Jesus giving a really specific plan, but He's giving a really presumptuous one. He's calling Himself the Lord, He's requisitioning an animal as if He's some type of divine authority, and then He's also not just requisitioning any animal, but one that's never been sat on before, implying that He is some kind of a king. Now, I want you to know that if this specific prophetic preparation worked, it would be clear that he was the king. And if it didn't, it would be a total fail. I mean, I want you to get what Jesus is doing here. This is totally different than the vague prophetic abilities of modern day fortune tellers. Or fortune cookies. I mean, last time you read a fortune cookie at a Chinese restaurant, it normally speaks in glistening generalities like, someone from your past is going to reappear in your future. Well, that happens every day. (laughs) You're going to find something you were looking for at some point in your life. Well, great. (laughs) I remember one time as, uh, this is a horrible story, children, don't do this if there's any in here listening. My friends and I were at a a sleepover and um, we were watching TV real late at night. Where, Where the parents were, I have no idea, but we were watching TV, and this like this was at the time there was no internet, and so they, this thing came on and said, "Here's your future. Dial this number, like one nine hundred, blah blah blah." And so it wasn't my credit card bill, you know. We just <laughs> we just dialed the one nine hundred number to talk to this you know person. And again, I shouldn't have done this, but I remember like all the guys were like trying to listen around the phone and. She did have a little bit of prophetic ability because she recognized that we weren't adults. (laughs) She picked up on that. But we begged her anyway because, I mean, she's getting paid by the minute, you know, for this phone conversation. And I just remember it was, I don't know what she said, but I just remember thinking like, that could be true of anybody, (laughs) anything. But what Jesus does here is so different than that. He's being very specific. And what I want you to understand is this isn't just a private meeting with him and two disciples. There is an entourage of people around him. There is a lot of public focus on Jesus. And so when he publicly tells these men to go do this thing and this will happen, assuming these kingly prerogatives, he's really setting himself up for failure or success. Notice what they do in verse 4. It says, and they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it, just as he said. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt, just as he said? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go, just as he said. It all happened the way that he intended for it to happen. look, if I'm the guys like looking over this cult, I don't know that I'm letting it go. I mean, let's say that I was in you know I had a friend come and visit and he's got a brand new car, and he pulls it up in front of my driveway, and he leaves the keys there, and then all of a sudden, these two guys come walking up and says, uh, "The president needs this car. I'm not just letting it go. <laughs> uh, the Lord has need of it." I, But they do it, they they let it go, They, they do it because Jesus is speaking reality into existence. He is setting up something very specific, very particular. And in this case, what's amazing is that a whole royal procession is going to be kicked off at the whim of His command, and it reminds us that He does speak reality into existence. This prophetic preparation even reveals Jesus to be the king. Jesus is the only one who can successfully claim kingly authority because he is the one who speaks reality into existence. I mean, when you look around at the the unfulfilled political I wills that are out there right now, wouldn't you want to follow a king and a ruler who says things and things happen? No matter how unlikely they may be, What the text is clearly showing us is that he's a king and that he's a king worth following. Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus that's recorded in the Scriptures. And by the way, we have four different eyewitness accounts of this particular event in the Gospels. He did things that only a king could do. I mean, most recently, we saw even last week that He healed a blind man, and we know from Isaiah 35 that it was only on the coming day of the Lord that someone would be able to do this. There was no record in ancient history of blindness ever being healed, and yet Jesus did it that day. When you read the parallel count in the book of John, we know that in this same day that He had just brought Lazarus up from the dead, after four days, four days of death, at that point the Jews thought that the Spirit was fully gone from the body, there was no hope of resuscitation, and Jesus speaks, and that man comes back to life. He does the things that only God can do. And here, in the same day, He speaks a royal procession into existence. This is a track record politically that you can count on. This is a word that you could trust will come to pass. There is a king that you can count on, an authority that you can rely on. And so we see that Jesus' kingship is conveyed by means of his prophetic preparation. But there's another means of conveying his kingship here as well, and that is his political procession. The whole political procession to follow actually underscores the fact that Jesus is a king. Look at verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus. We're going to see the significance of this now. And threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Now, what I want you to understand is that what's going to happen here in just the next few verses is going to uniquely identify Jesus as Israel's long-promised king. It's not just the fact that Jesus had prophetic ability, but it's actually what happens here. Now, so I want you to get the picture. You've got Jesus sitting on this colt. They have to throw their own coats on it because there's no saddle. Nobody's ever ridden this thing before. And Jesus is sitting on a colt. He's never portrayed anywhere else in the Gospels as riding anything. He's always walking. And it was a common known fact that people, pilgrims specifically, making their way to Passover because of the size of the crowds didn't ride animals into Jerusalem. This is an extremely awkward position for Jesus to be in, and yet he places himself in it anyway. Something different is happening here. He's saying something. He's signaling something by sitting on this donkey with these Old Testament Jews swarming into Passover, and he's signaling that he's the promised king. Remember the reading from our scriptures this morning? Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Listen to it again. In this context, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. And then he says in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. What prompts them to pick up on the signal? Why do they begin to think that this is some type of political ruler? It's because they know their Old Testaments and they've seen some amazing things. And Jesus, sitting on this donkey, riding into the city of David, signals loud and clear that He is the King who was promised long ago. Namely, the proclamation of Jesus being the Son of David in verses 47 and 48 of chapter 10. you remember that? Just in our story last week, I said that it was the first time when Bartimaeus was healed and he calls out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. That title had not yet been used in the book of Mark. And notice, for the first time, Jesus did not refuse the title. He accepts it. So they already knew that the son of David had been on the scene. He had healed the blind man in this unique way. The crowd has seen all this. And then they see this prophecy take place. And then they see him sit on this donkey reminding them of exactly what was predicted in Zechariah chapter 9. I would say that all of these previous actions of Jesus up to this point are like pouring gasoline on a pile of dry wood. That's what every one of them was. And then when He mounts this unbroken donkey and proceeds into Jerusalem, it lights the match. And you see the picture of this in their response beginning in verse 8. Look at the text. They respond. They get the signal. Because it says, many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting. Now, we'll talk about what they shouted in a moment, but... Notice this, remember just last week we were talking about a cloak and how valuable it was in the ancient Near East. And these people are taking their cloaks and they're throwing them on the road so that a donkey can walk over them. This was a conveyance of honor. It was similar to rolling out the red carpet in our own day. But it's even more humbling. There's a greater deference here because... These cloaks were valuable. You see something similar take place in 2 Kings 9.13 when Jehu was crowned as king. And so in the ancient Near East, it was an acknowledgement that you can walk all over me. (laughs) You are above me. You are beyond me. And not only do they throw their cloaks on the road, but it says particularly that they spread leafy branches. John calls these palm branches, but Mark uses the term leafy branches. It represented just another option for expressing their welcome to this messianic rider. I think if you were to think of like American terms of like streamers and confetti and pom-poms and you know those little foam fingers, <laughs> this is like this, they wanted to wave something. They wanted to acknowledge that this is a king. The palm branches in particular actually referenced or harkened back to 150 years earlier. To the Maccabean revolt that was actually successful, and the symbol of that particular victory of the Jews over their enemies was the palm branch. And so they're recognizing, even through this act of like ransacking the vegetation around them to throw it in front of Jesus and to wave it over him, that he is this king, he is the one that provides salvation. And I think sometimes it's easy to think that it was just kind of a scattered crowd, but the text makes it clear there's many. There's many. It could represent a significant number of pilgrims that were entering Jerusalem. I mean, you think about it. They're entering on the first day of Passover. This was a required feast for everyone in the Old Testament. And Josephus records that the population of Jerusalem would expand by 200 to 300% on Passover. And we're not talking about a place as, even as large as Naples in size. I mean, it's a pretty crowded and dense population. These people are roaring their... Regal chance toward him. The text says that they were screaming or yelling. It's an imperfect tense. Implying that people in front, people in behind, everyone just keeps shouting over and over, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. There's, everybody's yelling this. It's chaos. And even these words convey something significant. You may know from old Sunday school classes that Hosanna is simply an abbreviated word that means save now. If you think about the word Joshua, which is where we get the name Jesus, it meant salvation. Hosea meant salvation. So Jesus' name in Hebrew is Heshua. It's talking about Hosh, Hosh. Save, save, save. And then adding those few little letters on the end meant now. Do it now. Bring salvation it was a prayer that Andrew even read to open the service from Psalm one eighteen twenty five. Save now. And at that time, it didn't really mean political salvation or, or spiritual salvation like we think of today. Typically, when we hear the word salvation, especially those of you who grew up in church, you think, oh, Jesus saving me from my sins. When they hear the word salvation, they think, save us from Rome. Save us from the political oppression that surrounds us. Save us from this corrupt society around us. Save us from these Gentiles. And so they exclaim, Save now. Salvation. Salvation. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying that the the one who is coming in the name of the Lord, the one who is coming to fulfill God's purposes, this is him. And notice how they associate that with the coming kingdom of their father David. It's parallel to one another. He says, the coming kingdom of our father David. Again, they're not thinking spiritual salvation. They're thinking a kingdom. Like an actual zip code where somebody rules and reigns on an actual throne. Kings inaugurate kingdoms. And they perceive him to be the promised king. And that's why they say their father David. Notice, that's the big deal. He's the son of David. He says, bring about the kingdom of our father David. And then at last it adds, Hosanna in the highest. The final chant indicates that their salvation, their rescue from political oppression, would come from God in heaven itself. Himself. Revealing that they needed it to come from on high. They are caught up in this. And they may not understand how He will secure this salvation, but this is what they do know. They know that He's the one that's going to do it. They get it. What I want you to see in this is that political processions don't just happen. Especially in a land dominated by power-squashing Roman military. Are you following me here? Processions like this point out that someone is the king. So this impromptu coronation here, making a clear statement. I'll give you an example of this, I would only take you back to history, June 2, 1953 world witnessed the first ever nationally televised coronation. The queen to be crowned was none other than Elizabeth II, who still reigns today, as the queen of the United Kingdom. Interestingly, Elizabeth had already been queen for more than a year before officially wearing the crown. Preparations for this one day took 14 months of planning underneath her husband, Philip the Duke of Edinburgh. There were clothes that were designed for the celebration. Invitations were set out, that several practices and rehearsals took place. And in fact, no one was even allowed to see the event in the stands without an admission ticket. Like you couldn't even be part of the people in the crowd without getting a special ticket. I simply provide this parallel to underscore something, that political perceptions don't just spontaneously happen. No one participates in a political coronation by accident, especially in that day. These people were trying to say something when they started hailing Jesus this way. These faithful Jews recognized their Messiah, Christ, ruler, leader, king, had come, in Jesus... And contrary to popular opinion, Jesus did not just stumble onto the scene as an accidental Savior. He is claiming to be king. He is not telling them to be quiet. He's the one that sits on the donkey. He's the one that rides into Jerusalem. He is communicating publicly for the first time. I am the king you were looking for. For those of you who have ever been through public university and you hear people talk about Christianity from a secular perspective, you'll know that liberals for a long time, like the long-deceased Albert Schweitzer, have claimed this, that Jesus tried to turn the wheel of history and was crushed by it. Basically, what they're communicating in this is that Jesus was just a peasant teacher and he got caught up in these themes of messianic grandeur and it ended up getting him killed. True. That was a common refrain of the time. There were many people who tried to rise up and be the Christ, the political Messiah, but none of them ever received this type of recognition. None of them ever fulfilled this type of prophecy. None of them ever had this type of power, and none of them ever had this type of continued following. You don't hear of any of them today. You could look up on Wikipedia when you get home. uh, Potential Christ's. And it will give you a name of 20 to 30 people who had tried to do this same thing, but nobody had ever succeeded. Nobody had ever fulfilled things to this level of the tale. And so Jesus here is coming. He is making the statement that no one else can make, that He is the King. This event identified Him as the long-promised Jesus. The fact that the faithful Jews of this day would even be willing to risk their own lives with Roman authorities being around proves that they really believed him to be this king as well now regardless of who you think the king is and what he should be like what i want you to know this morning just for all of you attending saved and unsaved alike jesus here makes this claim and you've got to deal with it you've got to deal with that today he is claiming to be king now, for those of you who are visiting or for those of you who may not know Jesus, I would just simply ask you this. Do you see Him as a king? As the king? Do you recognize His claim to rule? Have you submitted to His Lordship? C.S. Lewis was the one that had constantly uh, provided us with this challenging question about Jesus' claim to authority. And it's what he called a trilemma in which we're either going to believe Jesus to be a Lord, the Lord a liar, or a lunatic. I mean, you think about it. What Jesus was doing here, it doesn't leave you with much room. When he says, I'm the king, I'm the one that's going to rule, you either think like, wow, he's crazy. Or you think, he's just lying. Or you're stuck with acknowledging that, whoa, this must have been the one foretold for thousands of years. This must have been the long-promised king. I have to submit to him or rebel against him. You're not left with much option. You can't just say, yeah, I think Jesus was a good guy. He wasn't just claiming to be a good guy. He was claiming to be the king of the universe. He was claiming to be the one who would right all wrongs. He wasn't just claiming to be a good buddy, a good moral guide. And so you have to accept him on his own terms. He doesn't give you any other options. He is making a claim here. He is saying, I am the king. And the question for us is, What are we going to do about it? Will we reject his kingship? Or will we submit to it? For those of you who are believers, I would say that even though you know Jesus to be the king, it's good to be reminded that we should trust in the fact that he is still ruling and reigning. We need to remain submitted to him in everything. I think in our current Uh, Christian culture it's very easy to talk about Jesus being our shepherd and Jesus being our friend and Jesus being the one that sticks closer than a brother but sometimes it's easy to forget that he is a sovereign lord who rules the world and he expects obedience from us now just like I was talking about the authorities in the introduction this isn't a scary thing but it is a challenging thing because he demands certain things of you and me And if we claim to be one of His, we don't just identify with Him casually, but we submit to Him formally. We do that which He requires us to do. Maybe it would even be helpful for some of you to have this simple conversation with one another as soon as the service is over. Maybe you could talk about the ways that you forget that Jesus is the King. Doesn't it happen all too easy? I think there's a couple of expressions of this. One is just the fear and anxiety that comes when things are out of control. It's easy to forget that He's still in control. He is the one that is reigning. And we as believers need to speak that type of truth into our lives. Or maybe when you have that conversation with one another, another thing that you could remember is not only the fear and anxiety that comes from forgetting His rule, but also just the challenges. Have I submitted to Him in every area of my life? Is there anything that I have marked out of bounds for His particular rule? And give that up to Him. And then pray together. That would be a great way, a practical way, to use a message like this to serve one another. But back to the point, we're talking here about Jesus' kingship. And particularly, we've noted, His prophetic preparation, the political procession, both of these encourage us to embrace Jesus as the long-promised king. But there's one more action here of Jesus that encourages us to accept His reign And it's a rather puzzling one. We embrace embrace Jesus' kingship on account of His puzzling retraction. His puzzling retraction. You see that there in verse 11. This is one of the oddest portions of Scripture I think you'll ever read. Notice this. And He entered into Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when He had looked around at everything, as it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, does anybody else find this odd? That you've got this surge of momentum. You've got Jesus stepping on this donkey. You've got the crowds erupting in grandeur. He's making His way into Jerusalem, the city of David. He goes to the main part of the city, the temple itself, and then all of a sudden, He looks around, and He goes to Bethany. What's going on here? But what you need to understand, and we don't get it because our government doesn't lend itself to think this way, but in lands that are ruled by kings, especially in that time period, this sequence reflects something pretty familiar. It was the ancient practice of royal persons being given a lavish welcome before proceeding to the city's primary temple to offer a sacrifice as a sign of their authority. Now, not only was such a practice just generally recognized of a new king in that day, but it was especially true for the Jews. The new order of God's coming kingdom would commence in the temple, not in the palace. See, we don't even understand monarchies that well, but we especially don't understand a Jewish theocratic monarchy. So it's a few steps removed from our culture. We would think that if a king's going to come into the city, where is he going to go to establish his rule? He's going to go to the palace. That was my phone. <laughs> but here, he doesn't go to the palace. He goes to the temple. God had arranged for Israel's future ruler to be someone who would rule for him, but in his presence through the temple. The temple was integrally related to what we typically think of as the palace. I mean, for this type of government, the palace where the king lived was merely that, just a place to live. But the official space of authority, the Oval Office, if you will, the Buckingham Palace would be the temple, the dwelling place of God. It appears to be the moment for Jesus because he's going to the temple. This is the place to inaugurate authority. This is where he's going to kick off his messianic kingdom. And yet, what does he do when he gets there? He looks around and he leaves. Now, in the context of these ancient entries that I was telling you about, the failure to welcome a ruler was an act of high treason. Given Jesus' divine and messianic identity, the lack of reception clearly marks these people as rebels. And Jesus' actions here, and then in the next paragraph... And then in chapter 13 to follow, the whole section that's coming up is going to show how Jesus is going to stand in opposition to the temple, the religious establishment of the time, the ruling authority of that day. He's showing that He is the King, but He's a different type of King than what they ever would have expected. For those of you who are interested in researching this, you could take your Bibles, or at least note Malachi 3, one. It foretold this day would happen. Malachi says that God's prophetic messenger would come and prepare the way of the Lord. And we already saw that back in Mark chapter 1. That was John the Baptist. He came, he preached repentance. He tried to prepare these Jewish people for the entry of their king. And what did they do? They killed him. Then Malachi 3.1 also predicted in the same passage that the Lord would come suddenly to his temple and inspect it and find it in need of refinement and purification. And that's exactly what we see happening here. Everything happens down to the letter of what was predicted in the Old Testament. He comes to the temple and he doesn't reign. He comes to the temple and realizes that these people need further work. There's further refinement and purification needed. Here's what I want you to understand. Their king had come, but they were not ready for his rule. Their king had come, but they were not ready for his rule. Contrary to the Galilean peasants on the roadside, the heart of the religious establishment, the temple itself, does not even recognize the presence of Jesus. So, at this late hour of the day, he simply looks around and walks out. You know what would have happened if he would have inaugurated the promised Davidic kingdom at that point? It would have been a bloodbath. Because it says that the coming ruler would come and kill all of the enemies of God and his people. And at this point, with their unsaved hearts the way they were, it would have resulted in the immediate termination and decimation of the entire religious Jewish community. They're the ones that would have been eliminated. They were always saying, kill the enemies of God. Kill the Gentiles. If Jesus would have came and ruled and reigned at that moment, they would have been the ones to receive the brunt of his wrath. They weren't ready for his rule. So Jesus walks away and continues with his plan to rule the world by first remedying the sin problem through his death and his burial and his resurrection on behalf of all who believe. And that's grace. They thought it was a problem that he didn't come and rule and reign yet, but it was actually a blessing for them. What I love about here is there's a deafening silence. This is a deafening silence. Not doing anything communicates something. If you don't think that's true, I would simply ask you to talk to the jilted bride whose grooms whose groom's refusal to walk down the aisle communicates something very loudly. In a similar way, the event is set up. Jesus could walk down the aisle, if you will, and yet he takes a step into the building, he looks around, and he leaves, communicating that something is wrong. By doing nothing at all, Jesus demonstrates His disapproval of His people and their worship. The lesson for us here is subtle and powerful. The first lesson is is pretty simple. Jesus is the King, still. That's what the whole thing teaches us. Yes, He is the King. He is the one who will set up a political and earthly kingdom promised in the Old Testament. We can't forget that. But at the same time, here's the second lesson. He will rule in your heart before He rules on David's throne. He will rule in your heart before He rules on David's throne. What I'm trying to tell you today is that spiritual rescue is needed first. You look around and you're like, why doesn't Jesus just come and fix it all? Why doesn't He just come and eliminate all the enemies of God? Why doesn't He just come and fix this dirty political world and all the terrorism that's around and put an end to everything? It is because He is still working on people's hearts. He is still bringing them under subjection to His reign. He is still making them citizens of His kingdom because otherwise, natively, they are enemies to Him. The second lesson for us is that he has not ruled this world yet, but he will. He is the one that's going to do all the stuff that was prophesied in Malachi and in Zechariah and in Revelation. He's still coming to do that. He just hasn't done it yet. You know, we, we ask these questions like, why, why, when, when, Jesus, why not come back? These are the same questions that the Jews of the first century were asking. But aren't you glad? that Jesus spared His return for your salvation. The political fruits of peace and prosperity can only come from the spiritual fruit of righteousness provided by King Jesus. When He decimated the curse of sin by absorbing God's wrath on the cross and rising again to show that victory comes to all who repent and believe in Him. Like That is good news, but it's not the only good news. That's why you hear me pray all the time. Lord, thank you for the salvation, and we trust you for the salvation to come. We are, we are saved now because of what Christ has done spiritually, but there still is a physical, real, earthly salvation that is coming. Jesus will fulfill those promises. He is the key. The text makes that clear. Hear me well, and we're done. The world has always struggled to understand this plan. In Andrew Lloyd Webber's irreverent interpretation of the Passion of Jesus entitled Jesus Christ Superstar, Judas Iscariot protests in this song, in the main song of the play, Every time I look at you I don't understand why you let the things you did get so out of hand. You'd have managed better if you had it planned. Why would you choose a backward time in such a strange land? The choir then answers, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who are you? What have you sacrificed? Jesus Christ, superstar, do you think you're what they say you are? The blasphemous interpretation intended is that this was a bad plan. What kind of a king steps into his kingdom and allows himself to be killed instead of squashing all of his enemies and ruling and reigning forever. That's a dumb plan. That's what Weber's trying to tell us. It's interesting that in Weber's interpretation of that, there is no resurrection. Jesus dies hanging on a fence and all his followers walk away. I want you to know that the world has always and will always struggle with this kind of a king. They don't get this plan. They don't like that rule. People would like Jesus more if He would come and just fix their life and make it the way they want it to and that everything would just be peace and uh, kindness and just roses and lollipops and sunshine and rainbows. But Jesus doesn't do that yet. Yet this is the kind of king that Jesus is and this is His plan. Can I add a final note though? Unlike Weber's portrayal, this king would rise. He would ascend into heaven. He would rule his redeemed people at his father's side. And he will soon return to reign forever on this world as has been promised from the very beginning. What does that mean for you? He rules. He rules in his church through the Holy Spirit bringing more people into His still-to-come kingdom through the message of the Gospel. He is still ruling. He is the head of this church. He is the head of my life. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, He is the head of your life. He is accomplishing His plan. Everything is right on track. It's happening the way that He wants it to. And that's something that He wants us to remember today. It's something that He wants us to embrace. It's something that He wants us to find hope in. Jesus, yes, is still the King, even if His plans don't go the way you want them to go. You should trust that. And more concretely, the second lesson is we should rejoice. This is the hard part. This is where we wait. And even though we're waiting, he's still the king nonetheless, just as much as Elizabeth was the queen before she wore the crown. What does allegiance to him look like? In this life? It's simple. We keep pursuing others with the gospel. We keep trying to see other people come and submit themselves to Jesus' rule and reign. But the next phase of the plan is still coming. Take comfort. You get stressed out when you watch the news. You're tired of the way things are going in this life. Tired of disease and death and terror and poverty and political corruption. Jesus is the King and He is coming and He will fix it. Just hold on. That's why we sang the opening hymn that we sang today. I know how it is. I don't always think of all the words that I'm singing either, so I want to bring this back to mind. The title of the hymn was Rejoice, the Lord is King. And the reason why we picked it is because it, more than any other hymn that I could think of, actually traces the progression of Jesus' rule from suffering all the way to sovereignty. Listen to these lines once more and then we'll close. Rejoice, the Lord is King. Your Lord and King adore. Rejoice, give thanks, and sing, and triumph evermore. Jesus, the Savior, reigns, the God of truth and love. Notice this: when He has purged our stains, He took His seat above. His kingdom cannot fail; He rules o'er earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus give. So he acknowledges the spiritual reality, the one, the salvation and the rescue that's already been accomplished. But now, listen to the last verse. Rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord and Judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice. Rejoice again, I say, rejoice. You catch the theme? He has provided salvation and He will provide a salvation. He is a king and He will be a king. And this is what this text teaches us. It may not happen in the way you want it to, but He's still the king nonetheless. And we should submit to Him if we haven't. Or we should rejoice in Him if we have. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that Your people would embrace Your kingship. It is just so hard for us to remember, to understand, to rely on the fact that you are ruling and reigning when things aren't going the way that we want them to. And yet, this text shows us you are that ruler. You are that king, even if your plan doesn't unfold the way we expect. Or if there are any here who have not yet submitted to that kingship, oh God, I pray you'd work in their heart today. I pray that they would submit to you. I pray that they would find you to be the true and perfect ruler, the only one who can right the wrongs of this life, this world, and eternity to come. May they find their hope in you today. Honor your name as we sing this last song about your throne. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.